Well, good morning, everyone. If you would turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7, and uh, Lord willing, we're going to close out Matthew chapter 7 today. Let's read it together first. We're going to pick it up in verse 13. Jesus said, and remember the context, it's the Sermon on the Mount. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day... Many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. So up to this point in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has been teaching, he's been giving doctrine, and uh, there's a distinct turn, and that turn really began back in verse 12, when we considered that last time, um, and it's marked out by that little word, so. So, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. And that seems to be a summary statement, a, a wrap-up. 
for everything that Jesus had taught in the Sermon on the Mount to that point. So he's done teaching. He's done with his doctrine. And now he turns his attention to his hearers and he gets really direct with them, really personal with them. And uh, this is stated really well by Michael Wilkins in the NIV application commentary on Matthew. Michael Wilkins wrote this, and he's uh, looking now at these verses 13 through 29. In each of the four basic warnings, two gates and roads, verses 13 and 14, two kinds of prophets, verses 15 through 20, two kinds of disciples, verses 21 through 23, and two foundations, verses 24 through 27. A choice must be made. Are you with Jesus or against him? There is no middle ground, no other choice, and a decision must be made, a decision with eternal consequences. That's the nature of these verses that we're looking at today. So let's look at these. Uh, this longer passage, with God's help, we're going to move through the passage relatively quickly. I, I will keep track of the time. So uh, if we have to, we'll, we'll break it up, but I'm going to try to go through these verses. And uh, in this first section, verses 13 and 14, Jesus is uh, telling people on the, on the periphery, the peripheral, to enter by the narrow gate. So supposedly he's been concentrating his teaching so far on his disciples, but it's, it's not just his disciples who, on, who are with him on the Sermon on the Mount. There are people who had not yet uh, committed to following Jesus. And uh, he turns his attention to them and uh, he says very directly, enter by the narrow gate. And so they're at this crossroads. They've heard the teaching of Jesus. They've been confronted with the person of Jesus. And there are these two gates, Jesus says. There's a narrow gate and a wide gate. And behind those two gates stretch two roads or ways. There's a narrow gate which opens up to a difficult way. And there's a wide gate which opens up to an easy way. And it's tempting, of course, to choose the wide gate and the easy way. If you didn't know anything else, of course, that's what you would choose. Why would you choose a narrow gate in a difficult way when right beside it is a wide gate and an easy way? But Jesus says that the wide gate and the easy way, even though most apparently make that choice, many go in through the wide gate and choose the easy way, Jesus says that that leads to destruction. 
And in the Bible, and from Jesus in particular, destruction means eternal destruction. Destruction without end. Destruction that never terminates in annihilation. But that's the wide gate and the easy way that many choose. But it's the narrow gate and the difficult way that few choose, Jesus says, only that gate leads to life. And so there's a couple of things here. The first is the, the narrowness of the narrow gate. And that narrowness illustrates the exclusivity of Jesus. So in John's gospel, John chapter 10 and verse 9, Jesus said, I am the gate. Here he says, enter by the narrow gate. In John he says, I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. That's what's at stake, salvation itself. And then Jesus went on to say in John's gospel, John 14 and verse 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So that narrow gate represents the great opportunity that Jesus offers for salvation, but it is only through him. Jesus and Jesus alone. There's no self-righteousness, no good works that we do that can contribute. There's nothing anybody else can do to save us. There's no other savior. There's no other system. There's no other gospel. It's Jesus and Jesus alone. Jesus only. So that's the narrow gate. And then Remember that the narrow gate opens up to the difficult way. And this emphasizes that the way that leads to eternal life is the way of the cross. So the gate is in the shape of the cross, but the way is the way of the cross. It includes suffering and sacrifice Jesus himself said that if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So Jesus' cross is the only cross that can atone for our sins. There's atonement nowhere else. But nevertheless, all those who follow Christ are signing up for the way of the cross, living like Jesus lived, walking like Jesus walked, enduring suffering and sacrifice in this life for Jesus' sake, knowing that there is a reward at the end. There's an inheritance for us at the end. There's goodness at the end. And we've seen that 
uh, uh, we've gotten a taste of that in the Sermon on the Mount. For example, uh, Jesus talked about persecution in verses 10 and 11. Uh, chapter 5, verses 10 and 11, as he opened the Sermon on the Mount with the Beatitudes. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. That is what happens to believers. We live in a fallen world. This world is at war with the God of creation. This world hates the message of the cross. It's a stumbling block to, to them. And if you are known as a Christian who are committed to following the Lord Jesus Christ, the world is not going to make it easy. The world is going to bring persecution your way. Oh, you're narrow-minded because you think that Jesus is the only way. Oh, you're a hypocrite because all Christians are hypocrites after all. You're a homophobic or whatever kind of phobic because you believe what the Bible says about marriage and sex and morality and all that Christ has commanded. That's what's in store, and a lot of us have experienced that. But Jesus goes on to say in Matthew chapter 5, verse 12, Rejoice and be glad. So yes, the, the uh, way, the road behind the narrow gate is a difficult way, but we are to rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And Jesus warned his disciples, look at how they treated me. They're going to do the same thing to you. So, enter by the narrow gate that gives way to a difficult way. The easy way promises eternal life at the end with no impact on your life, no cost in this life, no trials, just health, wealth, and prosperity, friendship with the world. But the Bible says, Friendship with the world is enmity with God. It promises Jesus at the end of life with no Jesus in your life now. And that's a lie. And that's why Jesus next warns about false prophets. So do you want to be a true disciple? Enter by the narrow gate. Secondly, beware of false prophets, Jesus says. This is a road hazard on the easy way. I'm sorry, the difficult way that leads to life. This is a road hazard. 
false prophets. Beware of false prophets, Jesus says. And here's what's so difficult. Here's what's so dangerous about false prophets. Who come to you in sheep's clothing. They look like sheep. They might even sound like sheep. They're apparently sheep, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. They're not sheep. This is Satan's own strategy. Satan is the master of disguises. In fact, I'll have you turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 11 briefly. Keep your finger here in Matthew 7 and look over in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. And uh, in verses 3 and 4, Paul writes there to the church in Corinth, but I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, the devil is the father of lies and he's very cunning. Your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. These are false teachers peddling a false spirit, a false Christ, a false gospel, motivated by the serpent. And Paul says, I'm afraid you're going to believe whatever is presented to you. Well, who is behind these false peddlers of a false gospel? Skip down to verses 13 through 14. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen. Remember, Satan is the father of lies and he's cunning. But these are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. They're wolves in sheep's clothing. And no wonder, Paul continues, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. And he concludes with verse 15 here. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. Destruction. And so, many times, they're going to open their Bibles and they're going to smile and say, God wants you to have your best life now. And they're going to use a lot of the same language that Christians use, but they're never going to preach repentance. They're never going to preach genuine, living, biblical, saving faith in Jesus. They're not going to preach about the way of the cross, the difficult way that leads to life. They want you to be at ease and to be... Uh, Friends with the world. 
but it's, it's a lie. It's a scheme. And ultimately, it's because they want disciples for themselves, followers for themselves. And that's why a lot of them are filthy rich. How are we supposed to identify these false prophets? Well, Paul in 2 Corinthians 11 points to their doctrine. The apostle John in 1 John chapter 4 points to doctrine. Jude points to doctrine. But Jesus here in the Sermon on the Mount points to their fruit. So back to Matthew chapter 11 and verse 16, he says, you will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes? Are figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Basically, the nature of the plant produces fruit that corresponds with the nature of the plant. The, the fruit comes out of what's on the inside of the plant. And that's basically what Jesus is saying here. And so fruit here refer, refers to the fruit of their own lives, but also the fruit of their doctrine, the fruit of their supposed prophecy. Does their fruit include obedience to the commandments of Jesus? Does their fruit include a Beatitudes attitude? Does their fruit include a willingness to endure persecution? Uh, a heart that is willing to do the hard work of putting to death sin in the heart? Does it include the kind of humility that is willing to forgive others? Etc., etc. That's the fruit that uh, should be looked for, that should be expected in um, the life of someone who would speak God's word in God's behalf because that's what a prophet is. And the reality is that spiritual fruit is important in the Christian life. You'll notice how Jesus ends every, in verse 19, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. A, a, a not so subtle reference to the destruction that is at the end of the easy way. But notice it's every tree. So he seems to be looking beyond just these false prophets at everyone. So everyone who claims to know God should expect some kind of fruit. This is why John the Baptist was preaching repentance and he stopped the Pharisees and Sadducees who presented themselves for baptism 
And he said in Matthew 3 and verse 8, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. There is such a thing as repentance, and there is such a thing as fruit in keeping with repentance. And the Apostle Paul wrote about the fruit of the Spirit. In Galatians chapter 5, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithful, gentleness, and self-control. These are things that the Holy Spirit produces in the heart of a believer. In Jesus, in John chapter 15, verses 1 through 8, he talks about the uh, importance of the fruit of him abiding in the believer and the believer abiding in him. And he also gives a warning in that passage that every branch that doesn't bear fruit, doesn't bear good fruit, is cut off and thrown into the fire. Another reference to judgment, destruction. And Jesus says in John chapter 15 that the father who's the vine dresser is looking for more fruit. The whole point is fruitfulness from God's people who were abiding in Christ. And so beware of false prophets, Jesus says. This is what a true disciple does. Then he goes on to say in verses 21 through 23, basically, know and obey the Lord. Know and obey the Lord. These words are really sobering. And it's a really stark warning. Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. In really simple terms, Jesus is saying, not everyone who claims to be a Christian, not everyone who professes faith in me will actually go to heaven at the end. In verse 13, um, we're entering the narrow gate that leads to the difficult way of the Christian life that ends in eternal life. Here, in verse 21, entering the kingdom of heaven is entering heaven at the end. So there's two different entrances here. The entrance to the life of salvation, the, the Christian life, and then entrance into heaven when this life or this era is, is done. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Remember in John 15, God's will, God's goal is fruit. Well, in a similar way, we know, because we emphasize a lot in our church, that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and that's apart from our works, 
not a result of works, lest anyone should boast. But at the same time, while our own works are not the basis or the ground of our salvation, they're the, like the purpose, the goal of our salvation. Because in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, Paul says what he does about grace and faith. Then in verse 10, he says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So we're not saved by our good works. That's impossible. But God saves us for good works. That's the purpose. To take rebels and turn them into saints. To take children of the devil, which is what we're called by Jesus himself. Check it out, John chapter 8. And transform us by the power and grace of God into children of God who delight to keep his commandments, who don't think that his commandments are burdensome. But we rejoice to do God's will. That's the main indicator that we are of the Father, that we know the Father, that we're saved by Jesus. That's why Jesus says what he does here. And then Jesus fast forwards to that day of judgment in verses 22 and 23, and he says these very serious words. On that day, the day of judgment, the day of the Lord, many will say to me, and remember, there are many that enter by the wide gate and walk on the easy way. Many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? These folks are putting all of the eggs in the basket of their charismatic experiences. They're prophesying, supposedly. They're casting out demons. They're doing many mighty works, and even in God's name, even in Jesus' name. But there's not a word here about following Jesus obeying Jesus, glorifying Jesus, loving Jesus. Just the fireworks, the extravaganza of charismatic gifts. And then these words, verse 23. And then will I declare to them, I Never knew you. What does that mean? Doesn't Jesus know everything? Well, of course he does. But this word, know, gnosko in the Greek, 
it means a lot more than just intellectual knowledge. It's often used uh, to mean personal, intimate knowledge. And the idea is really frequent in the Old Testament, but that word is used in Matthew as well. For example, in Matthew chapter 1, verses 24 through 25, we're told that Jesus, I'm sorry, Joseph, the uh, adoptive father of Jesus, Joseph, took Mary, but knew her not until after Jesus was born. You catch that? That's a euphemism. So the word knew there means very intimate knowledge between husband and wife. And that's what Jesus means here. I never knew you, not meaning that I never knew about you. Who are you? I've never seen you before. What's your name and social security number? No, he means I never knew you. I never had a relationship with you. You never knew me. You didn't want to know me. And then here's this frightening, terrifying verdict. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Because Jesus didn't know them and they didn't know Jesus, then there's no Jesus in their life. There's no walking in the way of Jesus. There's no being Christ-like. There's no fruit of the Holy Spirit. Just lawlessness. Doctors practice medicine. False disciples practice lawlessness. True disciples practice the opposite of lawlessness, obedience, law-keeping. Because Jesus is our Lord and our Master. So, know and obey the Lord. But then Jesus Jesus isn't done. He goes on in verses 24 through 27 to give a really familiar illustration that basically says, do what Jesus says. As I read these words, I can't help but think about the children's song. So Jesus said, Verse 24, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell. And great was the fall of it. So it's a cute children's song, but really 
the imagery isn't very cute at all. The, the, the image, the word picture, uh, is set in the region around the Jordan River. The Jordan River overflows, and there's lots of sand in the desert. Surprise, surprise. And there's lots of sand in the region around the Jordan River. And so only a foolish home builder would build a house on that sand. You'd have to dig down some 10 feet sometimes in some places to reach bedrock. And there are archaeological discoveries of homes built in that region uh, down that far when the foundation is constructed on bedrock several feet down. But a wise home builder obviously is going to go down to bedrock, build there a foolish, short-sighted, shallow home builder is going to build on the sand. And even in the word picture, the result's not pretty. When people have their homes destroyed in a flood, it's not fun. It's not a pleasant experience. It's a devastating experience. But remember, Jesus is talking about a devastation that transcends any loss in this life. Remember, eternal destruction, fire, he's talking about. He's talking about an eternal fall at the judgment day, the day of the Lord. When, when people say, Lord, Lord, but don't follow him, they don't know him. And there's some kind of religiosity, there's some kind of morality. But the heart is not with the Lord. They don't know the Lord. And so they've built their house on sand and then the day of the Lord comes. Either Jesus returns or death cuts short their life in this light, this life. And they appear before the Lord. And as they stand before the Lord, the whole thing collapses. Nothing stands. It's like a house of cards. And it turns out their, their entire life was a life lived in vain. A life lived for the world and the flesh, the pleasures of this life at root. There was nothing to stand, nothing to endure into eternity. Just fallen, just destroyed, bankrupt. Jesus, in Luke chapter 6 and verse 46, said to a group of disciples, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? And don't forget, that is the whole point. The wise builder is the one who hears the words of Christ and does them. 
The foolish builder is the one who hears the words of Christ and does not do them. That's the difference. James wrote in James 1 and verse 22, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. All right, finally, Jesus now is done. He's done speaking on the Sermon on the Mount. Now this is Matthew in his narrative <clears throat> as he concludes the whole scene in verses 28 and 29. And he says, When Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Well, it's easy to imagine, isn't it? Listen to what Jesus has been saying. The scribes were notorious for quoting each other, quoting their favorite other scribes and rabbis and human authority, and then layering on top of layer human tradition so that the word of God was barely perceptible. It was so buried in their mumbo-jumbo word of man and traditions of men. Now here comes Jesus. And you heard it on, in the Sermon on the Mount. He's not just saying, okay, turn with me to the book of Leviticus. Jesus says five times, you have heard it said of old, dot, dot, dot. But I say to you. Jesus was not only referring to the authority of God's word, he's referring to his own authority undergirding God's word. Jesus is speaking about the word of God, about what's right and wrong, about sin and salvation with the authority of God himself because he is God with us, Emmanuel. So no wonder the crowds were astonished at his authority. And he would go on to say, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So it's good that the crowds were astonished. But even that isn't good enough. The word there translated amazed or astonished is the passive form of the word ekpleso, which is never used to describe the commitment of saving faith. So being amazed at Jesus' great authority is not the same thing as committing your soul to him as your Lord and Savior.
And that is where God in his providence has us right now to talk about this. It's good that you appreciate the Bible, the word of God. It's good that you want to come to a place, I trust, where you hear the word of God opened up and there's not time wasted with the fear of man, uh, the word of man, tickling ears. That's good. But do you know where the rubber meets the road? Has the word of God penetrated your heart so that Jesus isn't just, just this far-off, distant, religious, or even historical character or figure, but he actually lives in your heart, and you know him. And you know that he knows you. And even though you stumble and fall, and you think of yourself as a pathetic follower of Jesus, yet bedrock, you are a follower of Jesus. You do believe the gospel. You do want to please him. You are living a life of following him. And when he corrects you, you get back on the difficult way that leads to life. It boils down to knowing Jesus truly, genuinely, authentically. Jesus said in John chapter 8, verses 31 and 32, Jesus said to the Jews who had, who had believed,